everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Rebind.io podcast. I'm Emily Rose, the assigning editor, and today I'm joined by Chris Brown, aka Lazarus Audio or Bo Chaotica, as they are sometimes known, IGF award-winning audio producer for the game Paratopic and for the humble original Roman Sands. Due to technical issues when recording, today's intro was actually done on a different date from the episode's recording. Without any further delay, here's the show. So, uh, a note to our audience, uh, I kind of didn't, I haven't been doing recordings this early, I had to go to a slightly different locale, uh, I'm sort of trying to find the best place in the Rebind HQ to do these episodes uh, sort of cleanly and get the nicest audio, so I apologize if like sort of the sound shape is different and there's more echo or anything. We're running live tests. Right. We're running live tests, essentially. Uh, you know, this is going to be stuck in the recording for posterity, so nothing you can really do about it. But I wanted our audio is really important to me, uh, especially when it comes to our videos. So I want to I want to give you guys the best that I can. I really need to pick up like uh, a proper condenser mic at some point and uh, do like a pop filter, because right now I'm just I'm just running running raw with a H4 Zoom that, uh, shout out to Escarbonzo, uh, for, for donating that. That was fantastic of them. It, it's just like getting used to this recording setup again is just something wild, but at least I have a window view now. So that's nice. Uh, Eric's so cool. Eric's great. Super amazing. The Zooms are pretty good, actually. It's good. It's a big upgrade from the Tascam we were using before, which is okay. Right. You know, it, it did decently. It was inoffensive. Uh, although not thinking about it, when I had the Tascam, I had access to a uh, condenser mic like that you would use out in the field. Uh, so I could have gotten away with that, but there's like really no good mounting mechanism for that. You just need a proper like TV shotgun mic with the wind baffle and everything yeah no 100 just like point that at your face <laughs> i mean that's the problem is trying to get the the zoom in a place where it is not an attack on the senses so this is actually a wonderful time to our audience and readership and listeners to affirm that if you want to support this show at patreon.com slash rebine and help us upgrade our audio equipment so that you don't have to deal with these weird sound shapes and I can get some sound insulating foam, I can make a little bit of a tiny audio recording studio in the Rebind HQ and we would just love you forever for that. Uh, they will pass the savings on to you, folks. Right, we'll pass the savings on to you. Uh, so why don't you talk about, you know, a lot of people in our community already know who you are, but I assume we have some newer listeners come to the table. So why don't you explain like your kind of your deal? Like, what do you do? My shtick. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I I am a, an audio designer slash composer slash producer slash implementation person. Um, and I actually have only been working in games since basically the start of 2018. Um well, that I mean, that's not true. I, I was working on another project prior to that, um, which is now, I think, indefinitely iced. But anyway, 
Paratopic was the game that I worked on in 2018 with uh, Jess Harvey and Doc Burford. And we shipped that in March on Itch. We kind of just planned to make Rent, but it ended up being a lot more successful than we kind of expected. You, you in particular, wound up being a champion and going forth and getting yourself an IGF, which is not easy to do in your first project. Yeah, I mean, trying to come to terms with that is a tricky one. Um, if on the first title they give you an award for the work, it's kind of like, okay, now what? <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't the plan. Um, I'm honestly, 2019 was crazy. So March we put it out on itch. September 2018 we put it out on Steam with some additions, the definitive cut, which I've really loved just kind of revisiting it and and going back and changing a couple things and adding some things to, there's a little bit of fan service in there. It was great fun. Um, And then, yeah, we found out in January, 2019 that we've been nominated for the IGF Nuovo Mm -hmm. and for the audio categories. Um, Jess got honorable mention in the visuals as well. Um, but yeah, so then like January, the conference at GDC is where the Independent Games Festival is is held for anyone who isn't up on the, the lingo. Um, IGF, they they tell finalists that they're in there in um, January. So we had to figure out all the accommodation and the flights and stuff. We actually did a fundraiser and people were incredibly kind. Um, the great thing about Itch as a platform, which I'm sure has been talked about on this show before, or one of the many great things about it as a platform is that the customers can pay what they want um, above a certain threshold. And that threshold can be zero. You can put your games on there for nothing if you want. I encourage people to charge for their games because <laughs> it's time and it's and it's 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 valuable, you know. Um, but there's there's no upper limit to what they can actually pay for it. So we had people being extremely generous. Um one in particular sticks out to me and I keep wanting to shout about it to people because it tells me so much about their character, but they did it anonymously. So I won't out them. Um, but someone gave us a thousand dollars as like they bought the game for a thousand dollars. Um, it's quite a well-known person, but I, I don't even know if they knew that we would be able to see their email and figure out who it was. <laughs> um, but that, that was awesome. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I prior prior to all that, I did a degree in audio engineering. Basically, the easiest way to make money with that out of university is doing live sound for bands. So I did that for a few years. I think starting in around well, I graduated in 2014, so starting kind of around there in 2015, and I've quit. I've left all of that behind, thankfully, because not only was it destroying my hearing, but also. Just it's really stressful. There's always a different challenge. There's always something to worry about. It's always like, do you mind if we? Uh, I brought my sample pad as well. Uh, I've got my iPad actually too. Do you mind? Can, have you? Got, I I'm only got so many <laughs> DI boxes, guys. Like, oh oh um, it's Simon brought his drum machine, dude. Is that okay? So, <laughs> I I had fun. I'm glad I did it, but never again. Never again. Um, some of the biggest format stuff we did like cathedrals and like. 35 piece funk fusion band crazy crazy times it, it it's fun and it's a good experience but man what a different world 
I mean, just coming from that sort of like performance and, and music arena and then just suddenly like spitting the steering wheel, making a U-turn and here we are in video games. But you're right. It's it's better for your hearing. I'm not sure it's better for the rest of your health, but it's better for yeah. your hearing. Yeah, no, it has its own stresses. That much is true. But um, yeah, the, the levels in the studio are much easier to control than the front of house. So that's good. Yeah, and it, it it was a big change, but I, in fact, when I was at uni, the one thing that I decided to myself I never wanted to do was live sound. Go figure. I always wanted to be in a production site, and I've always played games, right? So, like, the first games I, I played were just, like, demo discs, you know, way back when. Mm-hmm. Actually, probably even before that, my dad had a DOS system, so, like, Sopworth was one that comes to mind. It's mm. like a biplane side scroller. Um, Golf ninety five classic, and classic. Classic. And then when we started to get into three D, I mean, at a certain point, like Shockwave came along, the Flash games and stuff. But then the ones that really stick out to me were Unreal, the first one, um, Return to Castle Wolfenstein, American McGee's Alice. And all three of those I played for the first time on a neighbor's PC. Um, one of my friends from school lived across the road and her dad had like those and Serious Sam and stuff. And uh, we just messed around on it. And Unreal captured my imagination like like nothing else. Also Outwars. And I wanted, I've actually pitched a piece to rebind on this, which I should probably just write. Um, yeah, just do it. I mean, that that's kind of how our pitching process works, right? It's just... And, and, you know, for anyone listening, uh, I'll, I'll throw it this way. Uh, we can't pay anybody, uh, but you are always like, we, we love getting, we love being a first stop for fresh talent. We love being able to give people a platform because this is, this is in many ways, I like to think of this analogous to community radio, uh, you know, being mm. community supported both through the actions of people online on Twitter and also like direct support. And so I kind of consider it to be like, in a way there's, there's some public access element happening there. So I, I like people to just like, Hey, just send us a pitch, you know, that's okay. In your case specifically, you know, just, just send us a piece because I, I trust your ability to write and, you know, we can run it through Medea and just kind of go from there. Oh, you're gonna edit it? For, I mean, God, I thought I thought you would just put it straight up on the site. I thought this was a blog <laughs> situation. I'm gonna put it in big quotation marks. We are not <laughs> responsible for this sloppy, <laughs> atrocious op-ed. <laughs> uh, no, most definitely. And I figure I should mention as well that you and I have actually worked together before, and we. Mm-hmm are still currently technically on a project. It's it's kind of like in a yeah. back burner position right now. Uh, we worked together on Arbitrary Metrics second game. Um, and Medea was actually the narrative lead for that. Uh, and so that's called Roman Sands. And it was a humble original. And it's kind of floating out there in the ether. Not a lot of many people have played it. Uh, I did some of the 3D work. I didn't do the environments, but I came in and did some of the environmental arts, so the props and, and helping to touch up the characters a little bit and things like that. So I wanted to be 
transparent yeah. with our audience that you and I have like kind of a, a, a back and forth. We've, we've known each other for quite some time, even before that. I mean, we went to GDC together and which was great. It was a fantastic time. Uh, you and I have eaten many burgers and burritos together. Oh yeah. So we're, oh my we're, God. We're burger burrito buddies. I'm looking forward to it again. Like chat corner blew my mind. Um, super duper burger is my best friend around. It's your, it's your best Buena. friend. Yeah. And then what was the other place? Was it Pearl, Pearl Burger? Was that, was that the place we went? It, yeah. It's like Pearl's famous burgers or something like that. So much. There was so much. It was There's awesome. So much. So much is a great way to put it. You So with Rebind, I mean, that kind of segues into some of the other stuff we want to talk about. I mean, I'll, I'll probably drop more of my bio in there as we go along, but I think that that platforming for people is what is so good about the, the format um you know when it comes to when it comes to personal lore being that you are a, an audio person you should just leave a bunch of audio tapes and diaries around my house and then i can just right. like i can i can we can turn this into a little interactive thing we can put it up on itch and just people wander around a 3d model in my apartment pick up these tapes and just like have you just leaning in and being like and that's how i owned my first dog Mm. And that's and that's a red herring for people because I've never owned a dog, <laughs> so it's like, whoa, <laughs> who, yeah, who is he? Um, I'm not I'm not gonna actually like physically come to your house and leave tapes. I think we could do like maybe a lidar scan. Yeah, or... we could do that. I mean, you are always welcome to come visit the fine city of Seattle, and I will I, I will happily put you up. Thank you. Thank you. I I appreciate that. I'll I take that seriously. Um, <laughs> leaving the United Kingdom is something I want to do as much of as possible. Um, yeah, I I mean it's in the name Brexit. Yeah, it's let's not <laughs> right now. M- maybe we'll come back around. I just I can't I can't I, ca- it's I can't. It's a lot to deal with. Our, I think our audience will have time had time to to come to terms with it, but. It's fresh on our minds right now because it is all just the world is spinning so fast all the time and I am nauseous. Can I please get off? 2020, baby. But yeah, so there was this gap, I think, which Rebind has managed to to just like snuggle into really nicely where I think and we were having a discussion actually in the Discord yesterday about names like alt games and well, anti games <laughs> part of it. And what indie means and micro indie, the coining of that term. There's so many creators out there now because in some ways the process has been so democratized and opened up to people who otherwise just don't have the resources to have like a full studio. But people can be there by themselves at home, uh, get Unity, get Unreal, whatever, put something together and express themselves. And it just means so much to people to have the coverage that they get. I mean, I really think the folks that you feature, it it blows them away that somebody's like, oh, wow, I made this thing and someone's paying attention to it. And I tell you what, when the IGF nominations came through, I was in Marrakesh with some friends. We had a much needed break over there. And I I hadn't been thinking about it, but I saw the tweet come through from IGF saying the nominees are here. I go read it and there's a bunch of people in this 
community who had represented there. It's such a cool lineup. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm properly stoked. Like I met um Julian who made uh Promesa at Game Happens. Mm-hmm. Really really nice guy and it's like his first foray out there. And then suddenly he's got this nomination which is fantastic and I was jumping up and down on the roof like yes I'm so stoked for this guy I kind of know what that experience is like and I gave him like an uh, unbidden pep talk the other day as well because it's it's quite intimidating suddenly being like what so now I've got to like man a booth and like field questions and I'm gonna be at this huge event I'm doing all this traveling well well, it's this it's this huge logistical undertaking because you're having to travel across the world uh you're having to get all of your sort of like paperwork in order like am i good and to travel like it and especially because the system is so different here uh it's it's not just like stepping around the corner or going to the neighboring country it's it's very much so this huge endeavor uh and and so you have to do that and then it's like being in a foreign culture, a foreign city, uh, everything's built just a little bit differently. It's a little bit off. And then sort of like the the cost skewing is is exceptionally yeah. different in, in many cases for a lot of people. And so it, that's all assuming you can get in. And, and so you get in and then it's like you grab your badge, you head down to the showroom floor, as an exhibitor, hopefully you have people to help you. You know, that's another thing that I think about quite frequently. And uh, that's that's something we try to keep in mind is that like, you know, if, if anyone we know at the IGS is is like, hey, I need someone to watch my booth for five minutes. Like we, we even try to do that because yeah. we've done it before. We've helped out with the booths. Uh, you, we know you sure how it did. Is. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and it's kind of like, go ahead. Go ahead. Shit. Uh, I'll go <laughs> ahead. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really take much of a look around the expo because you it, it kind of like any opportunity that you have to be on the booth when you're awake from the Wednesday to Friday when the expo is actually open, um, you're kind of missing out if you're not there. I mean, I left loads of business cards, but if you don't meet that person who wants to give you money for your next project, then it's, it's like, oh, there's FOMO even while you're at the event. Right. And you can make up for that to an extent at, at parties and things like that. But in yeah. in that setting, it's hard to contextualize just exactly what you've done. And it's almost something that's a lot easier once you've have or haven't won that award because you can be like, oh, I was one of the nominees or like, oh, I got this yeah. award. Yeah. And you go to the parties and things like that. And you talk to people and, and you make those connections. But that's even assuming you like being around alcohol. That's even assuming you mm, like crowded absolutely. places. That's even assuming you like loud places because the whole thing is very loud and very overwhelming. And my heart goes out to people who aren't accustomed to that. You know, I, for me, I'm, I'm a media person. I grew up in a very media oriented household. Uh, You know, I've had an understanding of how to be trained for media Uh, uh, coming into the world and meeting lots of fresh faces and, and all these things. Not everybody has that opportunity, that privilege, that ability to have the experience of doing public speaking or or meeting all kinds yeah. of people, especially if you come from like a smaller country where things are quieter. Uh, like I get the vibe in, in somewhere like New Zealand uh, in particular, it's a very 
quiet, mellow place, not a lot happens. And so what I think is interesting about all that is that no, <laughs> no one prepares you for that at GDC. Yeah, you can't train No it. one like sits down and goes like, hey, this, this is how it's going to be. Uh, Twitter kind of does to an extent, but Twitter is, I, I love that place. I, I think it's actually like a wonderful, warm developer community on there. Mm. But it, it is a terrible place to organize information. You know, it, it's kind of like great for spontaneous factoids and like short conversations. But like people try to build resource threads, but that that means someone has to pin it. And, and most people have other things that are important to them around the year that they're going to pin instead. So it it enters this interesting problem. And we try to solve that this year with the Rebind Discord because we have a, a GDC channel. Where, it's been really cool to see that the people like yeah. sharing ideas and experiences and organizing stuff together. And I think some people are going to like room together and and hotel prices yeah. and and the costs of everything and and just trying to sort of rein rein everything in and make it more accessible to people because we have a lot of newcomers this year. I was actually really surprised with this IGF selection. There yeah. is a the IGF has a tendency in the past to be sort of like the select group that aren't necessarily people who know each other, but they are people who are aware of each other. And that's hard to deal with in an industry that is now global 24-7 online all the time. We have these huge platforms and everything. And GDC very much so at times feels like a, a relic of a time, you know, because they've been going since like the mid-90s. And it's always been built around this idea of like these physical meetups, these physical meetings, you know, uh, most of your communication with other people are on like mailing lists or you're meeting them at conferences or you know them regionally or what have you, you know, people are still calling each other up on landlines still when this convention kicked off. It's really built around a different social model. And I think that is a contributive factor. And I know Rami Ismail has kind of gone out of his way to throw his hat in the ring and do the the game dev world stuff, um, which is is really good to see. And I've certainly started playing with the idea, as anyone in the Discord can see, of uh, maybe figuring out how to organize something that is, is specialized. Because I think of um, the small convention Neroscope, which moves around mm. seemingly in the United States, and that's a that's a little get together for anyone working in narrative design, narrative games, things like that. And I go, there's not really a place specifically outside of maybe the IGFs where a bunch of people have been self-published through itch, making these micro indie games, making any scale of indie games, you know, sort of out of their home, uh, can meet up and talk shop. And let me tell you, we face a completely different set of issues, especially when it comes to paperwork burdens, how we put together our businesses. I mean, I can't tell you how many indies I've talked to that have been surprised that they had to form a business, yeah. that they had to have a legal entity uh, to make things easier for themselves, you know, and especially trying to navigate that and processing the forms that you have to submit internationally uh, in, <laughs> in countries you've never been in and, and learning about laws that you have had nothing to do with you for most of your life. Uh, so it is truly culture shock. You know, and, and we have our own 
needs. And if that's the one thing that I get frustrated with is I think it's really easy for people to flounder and struggle in this industry and not know where to turn because even all the wonderful mentorship opportunities that happen on Twitter, they're not proactive. You know, nobody's going to come knocking on your door if you're a relatively unknown person. And speaking about to how Rebind deals with a niche, we've tried to be that proactive force because we know how it is to be on the other side of that. Uh, I think it's and, working. Yeah, we do it with everything. We do it with press. You know, I'm constantly on Twitter looking for people with low follow counts who are making interesting content, uh, not because I'm looking for a scoop, but because of the fact that, like, I know those people, It's it can sometimes be years before anyone notices you. Uh, or sometimes you can get lucky with a viral gif, and then right out of the gate, you've got, like, 40K followers. It's... Yeah. There seems to be no rhyme or reason. It, it makes the work so much more gratifying and, and easier in a lot of ways if you just have some people there. And I think a community is one of those things where as the paradigm has moved away from kind of larger, more concentrated studios of larger teams and become more distributed, as as we were saying before, what's missing is that connection. Um, and so the communities have had to be this completely grassroots thing. I think Rebind has done a lot for that of just giving people a, a space to, to communicate with other people who actually have shared some of those same experiences. And that's been particularly acute and visible with the IGF stuff. And just seeing the new batch of people coming through like, oh, 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 oh my God, what, 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 what do I do now? Well, um, well, I know that we reached out to several people and we're like, you should apply. You should apply. Yeah. You should get in there because they hadn't that even well. considered it. Because there's also yeah. the fee, right? It's, it's not too big. Uh, I mean, it could be big depending on which economy you're from. Uh, and, and you can potentially get it waived and everything like that. But that is, uh, I don't think people understand, especially in our era of social and economic anxiety, how easy it is to be dissuaded by even small obstacles to that. Something that a company, a corporation would look at and it would be, wouldn't even register as a speed bump to them to these small indies feels like this, like, you know, massive, like, wasteland. Well, insurmountable hurdle. Yeah. I, I, I just had a conversation with, and I'm kind of thinking about how to finally respond to the last part of the chain with the people from the Webby Awards. They actually reached out to us and said, hey, we'd love you to apply for the Webbies. And I'm like, okay, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but they said they'd opened up new categories for independent creators with a kind of reduced entry fee. And I think it said kind of like 150 to $350 is the kind of region you should expect. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's not that's not worlds away from what the IGF was. Um, but then each category actually costs money to enter for, to be assessed for. So like there's the independent creator category for $155, but then there was also, if I wanted to submit for audio in its own right, that would be like $355. And then graphics is another $355 or whatever it was. Yeah, it's like, is this an awards show or is this like a shopping spree, like game show? Yeah, what, it, what's going literally on? the next page said checkout. 
So I asked them for an ethics statement on it, and they they've basically said this is standard for events of our size. But I did say, okay, will you acknowledge that this is actually stacked against small creators? Because in the same audio category, the winner last year was God of War, and like our revenues don't compare particularly favorably to Sony Interactive Entertainment. So there's like. Yeah, we don't qualify for the scholarship program because we're not non-commercial. But there's like small C commerce on the Indian uh, micro indie scale, and there's capital C commerce at AAA, and those are completely different things. But the IGF, I want to give them massive credit for a, a decision they've made this year, which is actually they've reduced the prizes for for actually winning one of the awards by I think a thousand for each one. I think the um, McNally Grand Prize might be might have been reduced more, but instead they're actually giving a stipend of a thousand dollars to every nominee, which mm-hmm. beforehand was not a thing. There wasn't any assistance, but I think that is fantastic because so much of the value of the thing is not like I, I was saying to people unironically, and it was easy before the award ceremony to say this magnanimously. Oh, can't we just not have the award ceremony? Can't it just be enough for us all to be nominated and be here and? <laughs> and it, but it it kind of is like the visibility and the trip and the confidence building is is and 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 the networking is such a a massive part of it but people don't necessarily have the resources even to be present and they have to put themselves out to do it we did our fundraiser people were very kind that enabled us to actually get out there but the IGF have now made this gesture they're spend, spending more money overall you know they've reduced the prizes but it's $1000 for every finalist and that you know that makes all the difference yeah, to and, these and people. frankly no one is there for the prize money people are there for the the nominations the prestige you can't recognition. bet on that <laughs> yeah you know i can i can bet on a body of work i can bet on a personal brand i can't bet on you know like a draw uh so there was this tweet the other day and from my understanding, uh, the the circumstances around this tweet are really shady to begin with. But uh, essentially, this this guy gets on Twitter and he goes, "Hey, uh, I'll give a thousand dollars to whatever indie game. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna pick five of you. I'm gonna give you like a thousand dollars each, and uh, you know, just just post this gift. And this this is this is a trend I've seen because, frankly, even well intentioned people. Uh, not that I am or I'm not saying that anybody in this situation is well-intentioned, but whether you're coming to it with like bad intentions, good intentions, it doesn't matter. The problem comes in that it's pretty exploitative, in my opinion, to go on Twitter and to go, yeah. hey, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll signal boost you to all my followers, uh, but I'm only going to signal boost maybe like, uh, oh, I don't know, 10, 50 of you before I get bored or I stop paying attention or I get busy or mute the thread. And you will just see the thread pile up with reply after reply after reply. And what shocked me about this $1,000 one was seeing the scale of studios. It's like, I know how yeah. expensive it is to make a game. But I also a know A lot of these that guys are already funded. <laughs> not only that, but they're, they're more specifically, I know that $1,000 isn't going to make that much of a difference to them. Right. So it's, yeah. it's not just the fact that they're kind of like, getting in the way of of smaller games that would probably greatly, greatly benefit from that because they have lower overhead. But also the idea of like your your overhead is so high. This is this is lunch money. It's just nothing uh, to you, yeah. It, it it's nothing. I mean like 
budgets range from anywhere from like 500k to like several million dollars for some indie productions. Like I I just don't think people understand how both well I don't like to think of it as games being expensive to make. I like to think of it as there is business money and then there's personal money. Personal money is I have a thousand bucks. Wow, that's so much money. That's like a whole paycheck. That's that's like groceries and rent and everything else. And then there's business money where it's like, oh shit. A thousand dollars. I I guess I can keep the doors open for two more days. Yeah. It's a different yeah, it's a different economy. It's a different world. You you burn through it so much. You really do. And that's just a part of doing business. Yeah. That thread in particular felt fairly performative and i think it stands in stark contrast to the example i gave before of the person who just completely anonymously paid loads of money for the game on itch it's like they did exactly what that person is promising but there was no twitter thread about it there was no fanfare there was no like right. follow me so i can dm and, and, you and that's my point if you're gonna come in and be that like sort of like uh that that generous uh contributor you want to really like fix someone's day i don't know a- ask your friends uh, ask, ask, yeah. and, and what I mean is ask them for recommendations, you know, yeah. uh, because people on Twitter have such wide curative tastes and it's also just like, I can't go five minutes without feeding seeing, frenzy. Yeah. You can't parse you it. You can't parse it. It's not good for you. It's not good for them, but it does get you a lot of Twitter metrics. Hmm. So it's, it comes off self-serving regardless of whether or not that that's the intent. It really gets the noggin uh, jogging. If you're a big account, with lots of followers and you want to promote small games, just, just go on Screenshot Saturday and, and just pick something mm-hmm. that doesn't have a lot of followers. Like, oh, this is a cool GIF and people haven't noticed it. Let me signal boost that. Just a retweet from your big account can make all the difference. It It's almost like Dickinsonian, right? It's, it's this idea of like you're the generous, nice, wealthy person spinning your cane and you're walking down the street and you're like, you see a bunch of orphans and you're like, I have this loaf of bread and I will break off a piece for five of you. Uh, but only if you do a, a little dance for me. Yeah. Oh, it's just, <laughs> uh, frankly, by even being alive, most of us are already doing that little dance for you. Uh, show some recognition, show some love, show some help. Or even if you can't contribute money and you see these and you want to help these people, contribute your knowledge. Uh but I, I have to critique what I think is my biggest pet peeve with these feeding frenzy threads, these like battle royales, <laughs> really gamified the industry from top to bottom, guys, <laughs> uh, is that it's it's the work opportunities. It's the, hey, I need an artist. And it's like, you know, sending that tweet button, it is almost at times like, equatable not quite to the panic but it's like shouting fire in a movie theater right it's like what 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 do you think is going to happen i could be the person to pay your next like six months of living costs but only if you beat out all of the other people in this thread here's an opportunity for you to read all of your competitors and i'm only going to pick one i (laughs) want every talent recruiter i want every studio lead to think about exactly that when you say, hey, I'm looking for an artist, you're thinking, oh, I've got to slot in my budget for an artist. I could probably pay someone like, I don't know, like 30, maybe like 50K. Uh, maybe I can only do like a short-term contract where I can get them like whatever they need. But 
I have room for this in this budget, but it makes up a fraction of your operating costs, right? You know, we're talking about like, I don't know, it, it really depends on your budget, but we could be talking anywhere from like 10% to even like 30% uh, because you've got a much bigger team, you've got other overheads, so you're not thinking about it in those times. You're thinking of, are we going to make these deadlines? I need someone now and I need someone good and I don't have a lot of time because business owners are time poor. You know, they're, they're constantly running around, they're busy, they're doing things. And so what it comes to is that it comes to this idea that when you go on Twitter and you make that proposition, those are the things that you're thinking about. You don't think of it as exploitative. You think it is collaborative. You think, wow, I'm, I'm going out on Twitter. I could just be posting this job posting on a jobs website, but nobody looks at those and it's going to take forever to parse everything. Whereas here, I could just like see a gift, see a link to someone's portfolio and just they'll email me and it's great. Ah, uh, it, it's so convenient, right? All the talent shows up, but for those people, it's everything. Right. So, you know, from the other perspective, it's you're, you're upset, you're frustrated, you're anxious, you wonder why nobody's recognizing your work, or even maybe you are well-recognized, and then you're just going like, there's no one I feel comfortable working with, I don't have a lot of connections, I can't go to things like GDC to build those relationships, maybe my network's underperforming. I mean, being a freelancer is really feast or famine. And we, our living costs never stop. You know, everybody's always got some kind of overhead, be it a mortgage or rent, whatever, uh, paying for food, doesn't matter what the costs are. And some people more than others, like way more than others. And so as that recruitment person, you need to sit down on Twitter and think, what I'm really offering to someone is Willy Wonka's golden ticket. What I'm really offering to them is, uh, you know, here's six months of being able to be alive. Here's six yeah. months of being able to take care of your loved ones. Here's an opportunity to maybe have your big break, which used to mean I'm going to be a movie star. Now it means I get to live another day. It could even mean here's your health care. Like it's yeah. less of an issue for us in the UK, but in the US, it is such a, uh, such a palpable reality that people just struggle with all the time. Well, I think it's starting to sink in, too, that that may soon be a reality for some parts of the world where it hasn't been uh, because of the way that the, the political landscape is shifting and everything like that. I don't mean to, I don't mean to scare anybody, but it's it's a reality that as these systems scale up, these governments, they love austerity programs. They love mm -hmm. going, what if we just cut all support to the poor and the needy and the working class and the people who really need it? And we'll just instead focus on handing out like, you know, another tax break to some sector or whatever, you know, there's always going to be those competing interests. And, and that's the thing. As a freelancer, you don't get the luxury of having safety net. You don't get the luxury of having everything taken care of for you. And so there is this really weird uh, culture ch change that comes from people who have cushy office jobs who like went to a nice paying school, their parents took care of everything, they stumbled into work, and those people still work hard. Those people still have real worries and concerns, sometimes a lot of student debt, uh, many, many factors. You know, it's, it's not like they live a much easier life, so to speak. But the scope of their perspective and the consequences for their problems, they differ. Right. It's like if I, if someone misses a, a student debt payment, uh, you know, maybe it affects their like credit rating or whatever. I, I don't know. You know, it's it's not necessarily a big deal. 
uh, in some cases, especially when you're already established in whatever industry your choice is, even if it's not the one you want to be in. And yet for some people missing even as low as $50, and especially for a lot of uh, LGBTQIA artists on Twitter and, and people of color. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be a situation, especially in America, of like $50 is make or break it for the whole month. Uh, think about that, stretching $50 for a whole month just to make sure that you're in scope of your budget. Uh, and that varies wildly from place to place. I mean, I think people don't take, don't give America enough credit for being a huge, massive country. If, if people uh, move, to, particularly if people move to the big city for the work because they're not getting it wherever they're from, then it compounds the issue as well sometimes. I mean, speaking to people in, in San Fran when we were over there, it's like most of the people I met at a party, which was completely unrelated to GDC, worked in some kind of creative field as a freelancer on temporary contracts and they all had a story about how they'd been laid off and it really messed with their housing and it messed with their ability to like eat a good diet and like their healthcare coverage disappeared or whatever it just that actually brings you to a hot topic before we segue into some of the stuff that we wanted to discuss uh since we're kind of talking about self-care a little bit and and looking out for ourselves and looking out for others in our community a uh, hot topic of late has been the sort of blossoming of worker cooperatives, so worker-owned mm. businesses, uh, where everybody's kind of a, a flat hierarchy. Everybody shares in the profit, which you know, depending on your country's legal system, comes with its own like hurdles and barriers to it. But uh, it is a shared responsibility instead of uh, all the wealth floats to the top and all the responsibility floats to very fixed points in the system that can burn people out, sometimes not have them be fairly compensated, yada, yada, yada. There's nothing necessarily wrong with a limited liability corporation or an S corporation or, uh, you know, whatever you may have in your country. Uh, But it is the fact that in the ways that they are typically organized, I mean, most people, when they start a business, they either start it where they already have a truckload of money and ergo, they are already used to navigating the system the way that it is, or They are people who have never done this before, have $10 in their pocket, barely can cover the registration fees for the business, and they have no idea if they're going to be successful or not. So you're telling me that I have to go out, form a corporation, and magically know what the charter is going to look like and what's going to be best operating practices, both for establishing the company culture and also the company policy internally. It differs from state to state as well. And I mean, we've just been failing forward with it, basically. Mm-hmm. I had to mm-hmm. tell my accountant, and I hired an accountant in December. That's not something that had been on my life plan, really, on the bucket and list. And you don't make a lot but of money. No, no. And and I was there like, we're not entrepreneurs. We don't see ourselves as like business people, first and foremost. We are, we, we produce games. We see that as art. And we have all of this other overhead now because it kind of worked <laughs> better than we thought. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but the the structure for a, a company is, is very much typically embedded in the boardroom archetype, right? So you you form that, that LLC for yourself, maybe one or two other people, and you're now like the chief executive officer and you have to nominate a tax matters partner and you've got directors maybe. Um, and there's the ownership question as well, how how the profit shares are distributed, whether you're employees versus partners. 
And this is just like, it's a completely different world, particularly to most people who come at it from a creative's perspective. Yes. And with with a worker co-op doesn't necessarily like solve those problems right off the bat, but it changes the context of it because you're coming into it. I mean, like you, you could probably start a worker's co-op by yourself, uh, but you're generally doing it with other people. So I was watching a video the other day, which has um, sort of a, oh, what's uh bombs fall. The person who made uh part of Scott Benson. Yeah. Scott Benson. Thank you. Uh, did a talk with a couple other people, tail spinners, um, pixel pushers union, uh, got together and talked about the structure of worker co-ops at GDC. I, I think it might've even been last year's talk. What's interesting about that is they, they sat down and, and talked about it in different ways. In an American perspective, you know, a workers cooperative, we think of the cooperative grocery store down the street that has all the nice organic veggie produce and, sure. and you know, you join it as a member, you pay some dues in and then you get some benefits and things like that. It, it feels like a savings club. You know, that that's most Americans exposure to a worker cooperative because there aren't a lot of them in other industries. But in the rest of the world, it's a little Either bit that different. Either that or just commies. Right. And, and in the rest of the world, it's a little bit different. Uh, and so Tailspinners uh, is a UK, I think, oriented workers co-op. Or maybe they're Canadian. I'm not sure where they're based out of. But I do know that they talk about that their origin story as a sort of like federated network of all these different narrative designers kind of all over uh, who were lumping their resources together and using their contributions and shared profits from the corporation to build up assets. So they could do things like hire a cooperative-wide accountant, uh, cooperative-wide uh, legal counsel. And so instead of having to sign on to these things as like, I am so-and-so and this is what I do, da 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 they talk about how the writing tests go away because you've got a nice like rubber stamped like logo and letterhead. It looks fancy. And then you don't have to shop around and look for an attorney or an accountant or anything that's specialized in what you do in this very weird field of video games, because a lot of the legal and financial sector has not caught up to the unique structure of what we do. It's still very, very out there. Uh, but it can be exhausting looking for someone that you can trust and that, you know, that you're getting like sort of your best bang for your buck. And in this and then you're getting value for money as well, frankly. Right. Because you don't know what the going rate is for a lawyer if this is what you do for a living. But you, exactly. at some point, may have to hire them just to get the paperwork in order, just to continue doing the work that you want to do. And when you have a workers' cooperative, you have this nice advantage of if your organization has dedicated resources to this, it's just shared resource. You just, you know, it's a, it's almost like being on a ship, right? You got like the ship's doctor. Well, you've got the ship's accountant, you know, and, and everybody uses that accountant. Everybody knows how that works. And, and so you can band together when you need to, to have that sort of like unified force to make things a little bit fair for you as a freelancer. And so I don't think people think enough about the alternative ways to implement the structure. This isn't just, oh, we have a studio, but the studio's worker owned because it's, that's kind of a weird way to apply a studio, right? You know, workers cooperative for a factory or a grocery store, it makes sense because there's always product going. But for a studio, you don't always necessarily have a project active. You, you'd like to, uh, but it's kind of more at the behest of external entities, of funding, of previous successes, things like that. But to have almost like a writer's guild, 
you know, a, a, a workers co-op where you're all just a bunch of like federated people in one industry. Uh, it means you can collaborate and work together, maybe only on little things, because like they were pointing out, at least with Tailspinners, they're able to share an NDA across the whole company. So one person signs on one project and they're working on it by themselves, but they need help with something. They can reach out to other people internally within the organization without breaking the terms of their contract. And they are able to speak freely. They're able to talk about what they're getting into. They're maybe even able to sort of like make arrangements that they can have someone else come in and help alleviate the burden of the work a little bit. So that to me is fascinating. And I kind of feel like it's it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. There are times where standard corporations fit. I mean, the, what was it? The, the, the union, uh, the co-op over in Paris, uh, the game co-op that did, uh, what was it? Dead Cells? Uh, right, I don't know the name, actually. Yeah, I don't know the name of them, but I, I know the name of their subsidiary, Evil Empire, and Evil Empire was being noted for being some of the same employees branching off and taking care of maintenance of the, the already successful title, and they did it as a normal company. So it was like, kind of like jokingly, oh, we're the Evil Empire, ha ha And so there's a connotation that comes with that joke. And Is it Motion Twin? Yeah, I think it's Motion yeah. Twin. Uh, don't, don't quote me on that, but I think so. Uh, but they found that there were limitations with the workers co-op model in terms of maneuverability. And that's because like the, the French model of legal entity of worker co-op is very different. Uh, you know, and I'm no, I'm no MBA. I'm no lawyer attorney, anything like that. So I don't think anything ever on the show ever not. as, uh, actual... I've come here under false pretenses. <laughs> I, uh, but I thought this was a legal you know, consultancy. I've got to, I've got to change my notes completely. <laughs> I'm invoicing you regardless. Uh, that's not true. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> uh, but it, it's kind of this idea that like, there's so many different ways to apply this, and sometimes there are ways to apply this that aren't helpful to what you're looking to do. But it at least forces you to think about this framework and how to approach this. It's it breaks that isolation, basically. That is is so much the issue that we were talking about before with some of the conferences and and online conferences. Accessibility to these resources. I think we're gradually starting to see those systems come to the fore. Co-ops are great. I remember meeting. I think the only one of the first ones I came across, to be honest, that shows my ignorance of the industry at, at large. Um, historically, was I think I met Jake at um. At GDC, I think you guys might have been at the same meetup. Yeah, uh, Ice Ice Water Games. That's right. A local yeah. cooperative here in uh, the the Great Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a hint of sarcasm there in that, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think there's um, a hint of David Lynch in, in season two of right. Twin Peaks. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But um, we're also seeing the unions kind of start to spring up for the first time. The UK. Uh, Game Workers Unite is a branch of a like gig economy underprivileged workers union, um, and that's the kind of UK division of Game Workers Unite, which started in the US. And I think you mentioned Scott Benson before. I think he's been involved with that, um, and it's something that's just been completely missing. That there's not that support network out there, but the gig economy is so so huge for for people in yes. our kind of. And that was Tailspinner's direct rationale. And I feel like 
Twitter tries to fulfill that role. Twitter almost sometimes feels like a guild or a, or a co-op yeah. or a union, but you none of you are like married to each other. And I know like one of the downsides of a work co-op is that you have to vet people through contracts for a really long time because once they're in, they're in. Because removing okay. someone is a matter of doing votes. And everyone in the organization gets a vote with the exception of contractors. So but the contractors are often a huge contributing part to the to the product as well. So the, the equitability yes, of it is... Yes, but something that Scott Benjamin is really nice is that you don't have to take all the leadership decisions on all by yourself. You know, if you feel uncomfortable managing people, if you feel uncomfortable with a lot of different tasks in the organization, but you're really good at a couple of different things, each person can lend their own personal strength to it. And it is sometimes susceptible to like, who's the loudest, who's the most convincing, who's the most persuasive. Yeah. So that's why it's really important to like, I I think of every organization this way, every community, every social scene, every friends group. Uh, it, it's like, it's like a fish tank, right? It's like a sort of like, you got to have the pH of the water, the environment to be just right, not too acidic, not too alkaloid. You want to make sure that there's enough nutrients in there oxygen that works and that also everything in circulation that ecosystem plays nice yeah the circulation so start thinking about any group of people that way in that think about do you want to be in this nice rainy wetland full of lush things that are freely available to you and maybe nothing is in excess and maybe there's some uncomfortable realities you're willing to put up with on a day-to-day -day basis but you you feel like you're nourished and you have access to like open fields and the ideal living conditions for you and everyone else in that system. Or do you want to live in a toxic dry wasteland where there's no water, there's no food? Uh, you know, I mean, people are thinking about the climate. It makes sense, right? Just apply this to your own personal social climate and your corporate one. If you follow the analogy, the, the alternative is almost kind of like a desert with these pockets of oases, basically, where mm -hmm, all of the water mm -hmm. is hoarded inside of the the big companies, effectively. Uh, I, I don't know how, how well that metaphor can, can stretch, but... So think about what your ideal oasis is. You know, if you have the chance to have an oasis, think about what that means to you. And I think that for a long time, Silicon Valley and sort of like... The, the tech dude bros out there have talked about company culture and company culture really comes across more often than not as a gatekeeping mechanism, even if the people don't intend to do this. And it's it, it creates like a, a bubble because then you start selecting for people who are just like you. A workers cooperative challenges you to find people who do the same things that you do, but are all slightly different. And so it's an interesting alternative structure out there. It's not top down, yeah. Even right. even in terms of the ethos of the place, it's theoretically more equitable, more flat, and a, a cooperation, right? As opposed to yeah, a construction. I mean, I th the the company culture thing is interesting. I was going back a little bit now, but I think like Riot Games was one that springs to mind, where almost it was almost cited as a defense that they have a kind of competitive um mm -hmm. like banter based uh company culture where everybody's expected to kind of you know get in the scrum and be able to give as good as they get and kind of like rough and tumble type stuff but they don't some they didn't somehow realize that that 
closes the door to a lot of people who like don't have a thick skin and why should they right like right and it's almost got a little bit of a nationalist twinge to it it's almost got that kind of american exceptionalism of like oh we're the land of the free and the most rugged and brave and uh you know we we take care of our own but only our free own, speech you know, free, yeah all, all these things and it's just that but for companies and sometimes that's a good thing sometimes it's like you know like oh i'm from uh you know, I'm from like, I don't know, uh, uh, Finland, and we're really proud of all these pretty trees we have. You know, uh, as far as national identities go, that's that's pretty mild. Uh, but, you know, it's the same thing with company cultures. You can be like, hey, we're making the world better. We're making things good. Uh, but maybe that's only like for a little while. Uh, or for a select demographic. Right. That's another thing. And I think that's why the comparison to sort of that unwarranted national pride is so useful here as an analogy for how company culture can gatekeep people in your organization and outside of it. Because if you are a bunch of just like dude bros who have all known each other since college or before that, or you all share the same hobbies or whatever it is, you're not paying attention to the needs of maybe like a woman in your organization or the people of color in your organization, things yeah. like that. Because if you're all uniform and the same, it's not that you're going out of your way to make anyone's life hard. You could be the nicest person in the world and the best meaning. And and maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Maybe you're a completely good faith the whole way. That doesn't mean you're not missing things. And I think people were really, really hung up of like, well, I never like have a bias against someone. I never say bad things about someone or think bad things. And it's like, that might be true, but, but it may not be enough. Right. I, I may not ever think, uh, I, I may not ever want to cause my roommates harm, but if I don't think to do the dishes as well, that means someone has to do them <laughs> and it's not me. I think this is why people advocate for things like Affirmative action almost became like a, a dirty word for a while, but um, the, for just diversity as an end in and of itself, because when you have a diverse team, it forces and it it may be uncomfortable for some people in it who were possibly in the majority before. They may have to make some adjustments to their behavior and their thought patterns, but it forces that ethos to adapt to a more equitable, broad uh, situation. So sometimes people are like, yeah, well, maybe it is a problem that actually everybody on your board is from the same key demographics. And they're like, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's just the way it happened. And it's very easy to kind of take offense and feel like there's a, like there's a slight here or like there's a bias against white dudes. I mean, let's not go there, but that's not what's happening. It's just saying, listen, maybe if you actually had some other voices in there, you might hear something that you value as well. And this extends to the application progress process too. It's like I've seen uh, people who are looking for diversifying their company and changing up the company culture. They just go like, well, we just look at all the applicants or whatever. Uh, and, you know, we just, for some reason, we just aren't getting a lot of women or what have you. And their immediate thought is like, <laughs> we just need more people to go to school and learn how to program. And it's like, you know, there are plenty of women programmers out there. There are plenty of people, color programmers out there. There's plenty of every kind of person that you can imagine there's a programmer out there that fits that category the problem is is your application getting in front of them and does it feel welcoming like i, I don't know but a lot of job applications i look at i mean like the 
if you're a tech dude, bro, you know, like ignore the minimum required years of experience. Just go for it. You know, just take a swing slugger, you know, just go in and give him a firm handshake. Uh, and that's, that's such a, that's such a male who is specifically comfortable with social interactions approach to do. So that's all that yeah, selects it misses for. the point. So sometimes there is some proactivity required in your part. If you want a good company culture, if you want a good, you know, environment, a good ecosystem for your company, which again, I think is a healthier way to look at it, then think about like, what can I do to reach the kind of people I would like to work with, even if I have no idea to get them. So it's like, ask your friends, talk to the people in those demographics, try and figure out like, like, listen, just, just listen for five minutes, but you have to start that conversation. You have to dare to do it. And the same applies with GDC and other conferences like we were talking about. It's sometimes people are just not suited to like heavy networking. I would say that you, Emily, are a prolific networker and an impressive one. I just, whenever I would see you around GDC, you'd be talking to some different person. Um, and and that's that's a skill that you've developed. It's not something that was completely natural. I mean, you talked a bit about your background in media, but some people just have none of that whatsoever. And they've been working by themselves, probably not in the US. And then suddenly they're expected to like, yeah, hey, welcome to this place where like 30,000 people are coming. And a bunch of those people are super comfortable with this because they're established. Mm -hmm. They've done this for years. They know the parties. They know the people. They know the places to eat. They know the places to stay. They get everything booked like months in advance. But at this point, I know a bunch of IGF nominees. It's coming to the end of January as we record this. They still don't have their accommodation sorted. And like the, the, the indie hostel is booked out. So they're looking at spending more, like staying in Oakland, getting the BART over every day, or Uber from like up north by the marinas or like, and and so even just there, that short gap and that lack of experience with it just pushes costs up and pushes the barrier to entry up again. But the ecosystem analogy is is really quite nice. I, I like that. It's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of these problems in our industry really are, are deeply rooted in the way that we think about them. Uh, you know, there is this sort of like intellectual baggage that comes with certain terminology, even the word the way just we hear the word, it makes it sound like, you know, it's like, uh, think about the word like moist, right? That's, that's a word everybody makes fun of because it's like, when is there a context outside of maybe a moist cake that you feel comfortable hearing that word? It just sounds like an ugly word. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's kind of the same thing here. It's like when you talk about company culture, that may sound good to you, but it's an ugly word to me. And I think right. thinking about things in terms of like, what's the utility that lies underneath the the secretness of this word, this like very vague, squishy What are you meaning, trying to achieve? Right. With it? And so think about the language you use. Think about the words you're using because those words help formulate your actions. And so... For me, I try to constantly look at my language and go like, what are things I can change to change who I am as a person? If I think in things in terms of a climate, I'm going to think about the way that we all do think about the climate right now, which is what can I do to ensure that there's balance? Things benefit everyone. I um, The language point is interesting. It's a li- little bit of a diversion, but I had um, 
therapy earlier this week. I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to pay for private therapy, which is, I mean, we're able to have some free counselling and stuff in the UK, at least at the moment. It's still woefully underfunded, but anyway, I'm you know I'm I'm lucky with that. And one thing that came up was I said I've been feeling really bad. Like my mental health has basically been kind of in the toilet um, recently. But I said last week I didn't really get any work done. There's a piece of software I need to become familiar with. Basically, I'm trying to like just figure out if Wise will work for our next project as audio Mm. middleware. Um, I that's that's the way I worded it to him. I said there's a piece of software I should have been working with and looking at but i didn't and he he pointed out and reflected to me you know you've said should and i'm like what oh oh i could have said could there's a piece of software i could have done and then even just there the difference between could and should is like the difference between a failure and a choice and i i have consciously made a decision and i've kind of come to peace with the idea that some of my time or sometimes a lot of my time is going to be dedicated to mental health and self-care. And so I don't feel bad about that, but even just in what I was saying and the kind of self, um, the self-talk that I had was couched just a little bit in an obligation that perhaps, I don't know, was sort of enforcing itself. So it's sometimes you really just got to catch yourself and the same thing applies to organizations. I mean, we, mental health in organizations in terms of counseling and mediation things like that i mean wow i don't think people are even ready to have those conversations yet it seems um there's there's enough in just dealing with the the structure of a company let alone actually providing enriching services for the people within it that they might not otherwise have access to i mean can you imagine (laughs) right no 100 percent uh and and that's kind of like the thing uh this is probably a great segue to talk about something that we had discussed before the show if you feel up for it uh to kind of talk about because now that we've kind of talked about like you know group psychology and the psychology of companies and co-ops and things like that maybe it's time to get a little uh introspective because this is kind of been a hot topic in the discourse but i don't think I think most people talk about it in, in retrospective of like some of the horrible things that have happened over the past years to, to the community and things that we've witnessed and things that we've seen happen to people. It's always this very like reactive, reflexive sort of like uh, looking back at this horrible stuff. And, you know, content warning here. Uh, if you listen to this point, it, it might get a little somber. Uh, we might talk about some hard topics from this point on. Uh, but it's all it's it's all in 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 aid of a positive outcome we hope yeah exactly exactly you know if you're not comfortable with those things i'm pretty much going to try to keep this focus on this topic for probably the the remaining like 20 minutes or so of this episode so just feel free to skip out on this one if you don't feel comfortable with that but we'll try to tackle this in a very like uh understanding way and i i want to still keep the language like fairly sensitive like i don't want to get too uh, necessarily explicit, especially on the heavier topics. Uh, but it's important to talk about if you're up for it, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, that's that's been part of my journey. So um, my I'm, I'm trying to kind of basically be an advocate for mental health. One of the most kind of pivotal moments for this recently was actually Game Happens Festival, which I, I went to in November. Um and a, a lot had happened. Like you said, last year, there was a lot of 
traumatic stuff happen and it really felt like i felt weirdly it's a bit ironic i felt kind of most strongly connected to the community of developers and people adjacent to game development in particularly in the industry when we were all kind of sharing that stuff which initially was like examination of trauma i'm talking about kind of august 2019 here um thinking about how to support victims how to deal with abusers and there was a lot of like good self-reflection going on there was a lot of good conversations that were being had and difficult conversations and people were revealing things and coming forward so in a lot of ways it was cathartic but it was also incredibly difficult because it's always difficult to talk about this stuff and I think it also then became grief. Um, so, like, I don't know how how specific to get, but one one of the people who was involved in in this situation actually possibly took their own lives as well. I, I believe that's that's confirmed, and it, it was a really ambiguous feeling for a lot of people because this was someone who was pretty well established to have had an abusive history towards other people yeah and yet they were clearly suffering that 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 was that was a big that was a big uh event that had happened at that point and it it spurned on this big discussion of what does it mean when it happens like this because as you pointed out in that that person's case in particular they had had a very troubled history uh and it was kind of this lens of like but does the tragedy necessarily absolve the weight of their actions? And so it got it got yeah. everybody really introspective in thinking about this and, and thinking about the language in which they talk about this stuff. Um, I don't want to go too much into that because I think that's a good reference point for people to have because it's spreading the discussion on. Yeah, the, the outcome from that is basically that you realize what this person was missing and what the victims were missing in many, many cases, and I mean, in, perhaps in some ways more so the abusers themselves, they haven't had their own issues addressed. Mm-hmm. They haven't had access to the kinds of services like counseling, like psychotherapy, like mediation, and perhaps even like just, just actually like conscious and and proactive peer groups who are willing to to sit down and talk those things through. Because often work colleagues are not the people you need to be going to to have conversations about right. this stuff. And and I think also that the mentorship by which we provide, uh, much in the way that we would say, hey, I'm not an attorney. I can't give you legal advice. I can give you a few pointers here and there. But you really need to go get professional consult. It's kind of the yeah, same yeah. thing it's applies It's the same with here. mental health. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. There are professionals and they, you know, you kind of think, oh, but they're just talking. Well, no, I mean, there's a huge skill set to, to something like psychotherapy and it's also experience and they have therapy themselves because of the things that come up in their work. So there's there's a there's a support network behind them, which is necessary, whereas otherwise the people who are, who are your close friends, sometimes they're able to take the burden, sometimes they're not. Another thing came up, which was a, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek about kind of like are you in the the headspace to receive mm-hmm. um uh, n- news that might hurt you right now and i mean we it kind of became a joke but 
there's something there about respecting people's energy and their emotional labor and things like that. And I think especially those come in useful when we are in a place of high stress and tension. So yeah. Picking up those ideas. I mean, when you're on holiday, you put an auto reply that says I'm not here. I mean, it's kind of just the same thing. Totally. And, and I'd also like to say that like, when we're talking about professionals and trained people, that doesn't always necessarily mean like a, an expensive psychologist or psychotherapist or things like that. It's like perhaps you come from a religious background. Perhaps you have a good religious community, sure. uh, a religious leader. Pastoral yeah, care in general. Like that. Uh, maybe you even have like some familial or uh, authoritative figure that's lived for your – spent a lot of time in life, right? Uh, you've, you've got that village elder, so to speak. Uh, they come in many forms. They have a specific skill set. Um, they're not all created equally, and some of them are better at it than others. But know that there are different options. You know, you do, you can take baby steps, and you can you can go and, and yeah. see one or the other, or you can do both at the same time. Like, don't – because I think when people think of booking therapy here in the States I, – I don't know if this is the same thing over there, but, but here in the States we have this issue of a lot of therapists and care professionals are overbooked. They're really expensive – uh, and they're not always sliding scale. Those things aren't always available to you. So, you know, it's kind of easy to go on Twitter and, and for someone who works in an office environment to just go like, oh, just, just get some therapy, you know, just, just go, go, go sure. see a psychologist. Cause it's like, you know, you, you got insurance, your work, use it. I mean, that's a, it's a joke to, to pretend that that is <laughs> the solution. I mean, even if you were able to do that, it takes ages. It's like a longitudinal thing. It's a treatment. Yes. And having grown up in some of those situations i also know too that sometimes you live very rurally uh be it a country or a state or a region you don't always have access to professionals who would get you so it it's 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 just like dealing with an accountant or or an attorney or anything else uh through this lens specifically that you're not always necessarily getting the value through your money. So don't assume that just because you're paying an expensive therapist, you're getting good care. You have to judge that for yourself. You have to pay attention just like any other thing that you're dealing with. You know, you go over your own like budget paperwork, you go over your own, like, you know, everything that touches your company and your life, you're already reviewing that. You need to review it here too. And that might seem overwhelming because in that position, you sort of have the issue of when you're at your lowest point, the last thing you want to be doing is adding more to your plate. So you you have to learn. <laughs> Going, hey, maybe I need to change exactly. everything. <laughs> you need to break down the small steps. So when you're looking for those professionals in your life, you need to do so in a way where you kind of have maybe, maybe you set up like a pros and cons like kind of list. Maybe you just write things yeah. down on paper, uh, you know, this... This person's got a really good bedside manner, but they they listen more than they talk. Or maybe I really just need some straight advice. So maybe I want someone a little more proactive. Uh, there are different styles of therapy. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's there's all kinds of stuff. And so keep that in mind when you are reaching out. And also, yeah. I think something that's important to think: just because you don't think you need to talk to someone, doesn't mean that you don't. And that extends to other people too. If you see a friend struggling with something that maybe, I mean, this happens in work environments all the time, right? 
crunch has devastating psychological effects, but we think of it as just like, oh, work's just hard. You know, work, it was, work is just hard. <laughs> That's kind of what we're focused on here with hey, this Hey, what's discussion. up? You seem a little bit down. Oh, you know, just work. Okay, end, end of, of conversation. conversation. <laughs> no big deal. Like, it doesn't matter if your boss spent all day screaming at you. It doesn't matter if the entire weight of the company is on your shoulders because nobody asked you, like, hey, can I take yeah. some of that, like, load off of you? Uh, it, it kind of just... We don't have anyone to talk to about those things. And so it's really important to slowly carve out people we can, both professionally and personally. Yeah, and it's 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 a diverse, it's a broad church, basically, of options. And basically, none of them are easy to engage with. That's the thing. Because it also does involve, like you were saying, basically an audit of your of yourself, of your life, of your work, of the people you know, the people you spend time with, the messages that you give yourself. I mean, some of the stuff that I typically listen to when I'm playing a game um, are often like call-in shows or whatever. And actually at the moment, I've realized it's really stressing me out hearing people fight um, and just like debate and argue with each other. So I'm having to avoid that kind of media and just go for like, I'm like watching speedruns instead. Um but yeah, if if like I'm wrap it back round, I think the point about a crunch and burnout is is a really huge one. This this thing with game happens. I was invited very very kindly by uh, Madalena, who's one of the organizers. Uh, Marina was also fantastic. Both of those people are, are incredibly like inspirational. The fact that they pulled this together. Um, the event had to be cancelled last year because of a lack of funding and a bunch of like just difficult scenarios. And I heard from people, this is an, an event in Genoa in, in Italy, in the Northwest. Um, and I heard from people there that it was one of the most important events for independent games in Italy. And they were heartbroken when the 2018 edition didn't go through. I said last year before I it's 2020 now chris like come on um because they didn't have anywhere to go like we were saying before that community aspect is really really crucial for small teams and soloists but even in wider industry um in in larger studios you've got similar problems people can bury the issues that they're having and i one of the things i cited i, I was asked to give a talk um, either one talk on mental health and audio or two talks. I opted for two because it didn't seem like I could segue particularly well between the two. Um, it'd be a, a little bit a whiplash there. Um, I cited the IGDA uh, developer satisfaction survey as well as the take this white paper on uh, the state of the industry. And they have a lot of interesting stats. There's not... It's It's generally about mental health even though some of it is really more tangential but some of the stats i've got a couple of them to hand i've just pulled up anyway um 64 of the people surveyed and developers surveyed had been in the industry fewer than 10 years and 50 the 53 percent reported crunch as like an expected part of the job 60 plus hours a week mm. and that's like 18 percent of them receive overtime compensation now, the World Health Organization says that depression is one of the biggest blockers uh, in mental health. One of the most serious causes of disability worldwide is depression. And there seems to be kind of uh, an epidemic 
and we're not really dealing with it institutionally or, or personally. So I just think conversations are really important. One of the talks that I saw there on the, the first day, luckily I didn't have to deliver as soon as I arrived, um, was from someone who had been exploring feminism with his his girlfriend and one of the messages he'd learned was that it was really important for uh, guys like men to stand up and kind of like, I don't know, take ownership of their history, their, their struggles, their, their and, baggage. And their communities too. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's all, it's all collaborative. Um, and that kind of really, along with Marina's opening statement about her anxiety and the fact she'd never been up on stage in all of the years that they'd run this and her element of change, the, the theme for the festival last year was elements of change. Her element of change was going to be more present. And I, I just, I, I was welling up. She was welling up. I think most people in the room had, had, had felt the impact of that. Um, it really set the tone and it, it was a small thing. I mean, the contrast of GDC was incredible it really felt like the right venue to kind of tell this story. So I actually ended up being, well, the night before, so the end of the first day of the fest, after the first set of talks, I went and added a bunch more stuff on the front about myself because I was really unsure about how 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 much to divulge and whether it was the right platform for it and things like that. I didn't want to just dump on people, but equally I wanted to, particularly after the talks I saw on the first day, I felt it was right to share a little bit more. So I ended up sharing more details really with that that room full of people than even most of my friends knew, I think, about basically my my dad's death when I was 16. And and that's that was a real turning point for me because it, it helped me so much to integrate that into my identity publicly like there's no taking that back now it's out there and i'm happy that it's out there and also it helped it like almost counterintuitively to externalize it as well and to go actually that's that's him those are choices that he made it's not it it doesn't it doesn't impact on me i can tell that story and i'm still here i still survived it so that but that's that's me with a a platform to to give a talk and just share a little bit about what my my process has been getting here and i'm still struggling like day to day week to week trying to keep my head together it's i i kept putting off therapy last year um until we'd finished roman sands and initially we planned to ship i think it was like april or or june i think and then we shipped in october Mm -hmm. but i knew that i wanted to finish that project so that I didn't have to like go to therapy, unpack this box of stuff because I hadn't been since I'd got into games, basically, and then have to get straight back to work. So that I, I just I had to wait until this project was up, and I was literally like October was horrible, it was absolutely horrible. Uh, it's really up there for the worst months. But when I did get the chance to do it. I'm like, okay, now I have some time in front of me to unpack these issues and I'm still kind of chewing through that now. But again, geez, if I'd had to pick something else up just to pay the bills immediately, if it wasn't for the way that we've set our company up and our uh, and our and the way that we handle our revenues for arbitrary metric, I wouldn't have really had an option. 
So I think I feel like the best that I can do at this stage is try to raise awareness of it and just say say to people, look, it's okay to struggle with this stuff and it's okay to reach out for help. I mean, that's, it feels trite just to say that, but actually I think sometimes it, it, people do need to hear it. I think it's especially um, important to hear from someone that people can relate to, right? Because this is this is kind of the issue and, and why I think people have so many objections to like feminism and, and ideas of social justice because they get really hung up on it as if it's like an attack. And it's like, no, it's a tool set. It, it, it's for you yeah. to be introspective about and you were invited to this discussion. And I think that those arenas had the most development first and now that's starting to branch out and spread out. And it's like, it's, it's a welcoming invitation to take accountability for yourself for your own sake uh and also to just put down the obligations which you're kind of shouldering with the identity that you've kind of been given you you have them regardless of whether or not you want to acknowledge them and if you use them properly it can empower you actually it's not a and, and I think this is a problem with men's mental health, especially, is that there is such a, a focus on being stoic, of being strong, of, you know, not talking to anyone. And that doesn't, that doesn't work. You know, we're all human. We're all vulnerable. We all have issues that bother us and we all experience the world in different ways. Uh, and it's, it's that idea that like people isolate and turn these little islands. I mean, I know that when I was struggling during certain aspects of development, I was able to come to you and we were able to like kind of mutually confide in each other a little bit, but I recognized that there was even a yeah. limit to that. Like, like there's only so much commiseration and, and trauma bonding you can do before it can actually sometimes be even self-destructive and, and, and harmful to each other. It can be a toxic thing, honestly. If you become, you kind of inhabit it. Yeah, in and a also way. I think a lot of people don't take this into account, but there are people you can dump on and then there are people who you can dump on who won't tell you to stop because they feel obligation or loyalty to you or anything like that. So the way you fix this is by setting and knowing your own boundaries and setting that for other people. I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm a very busy person, right? But part of that is by design, you know, overworking is always a problem that's run in my family for generations. And I think, and this is probably true for a lot of people out there, there is a certain comfort in always having something to do, especially when it comes to work, because money, work puts money on the table, it provides for people, you've got teams that rely on you, like all these things, and it it feels great. But we don't talk about how sometimes we can use that as an excuse to avoid our families, to avoid personal development, to avoid growing in our personal goals or maybe reevaluating the obligations we have to other people in our personal lives. I think the internet and the parasocial aspect can intensify this as well because it's very easy to create a persona, particularly on somewhere like Twitter. The most like vivacious and energetic and like larger than life people you see on there might really be doing that to avoid something else that they're uncomfortable with about their identity. So great example of this actually. And, you know, for those that feel up to it, let's yeah, call them it, out. It's, Fuck it's, it. it's worth, <laughs> it's worth looking at. There's a YouTube channel, uh, Linus tech tips, pretty well known, like 10 million subscribers, huge, huge, huge. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
he just had a video where it was very emotional and he, he kind of speaks very frankly about, he's been at this for, you know, probably like a decade and he talks about his anxieties yeah. and his issues with it and the effect that it's had on his family and the, the issues that it's presented of getting in the way of his personal life. Uh, he, he also worries like, am I contributing to problems in climate change because I influence the opinions and, and buying trends of so many people? Uh, you know, why am I still doing this? Am I doing this for me? Am I doing this for my family? And he talked about this very thing, this idea that his endeavor became so self-consuming, so self-encompassing and that all his friends were from work. You know, he didn't have anyone outside that. Yep. And he certainly by his, by his own admission had no confidence really that he could think of because I think people go like, Oh, you're, if you have a family or romantic partner or you have parents or anything like that, you think, Oh, well that that's free therapy, right? You know, they'll, they'll take care of me and we can find <laughs> each other. And it's like just in the same way that in a working partnership, there are limits, there are limits with your relationships too. And I think that people try to seek so much in one another, which when really they should be load balancing across their whole lives, they should be seeking out not just professionals or personal relationships that are balanced. It comes back to the ecosystem thing. And this is something I wanted to mention about worker co-ops before we wrap this up, is that worker co-ops don't scale well past a certain point. You want to generally keep it under 10. Uh, and what this means is that even if you have a slightly larger worker co-ops, it's more like a federation of like, you know, uh, uh, talented professionals like tail spinners or whatever. In all those resources that you're paying for as a group, there is a possibility that you could have like a company therapist uh, because, you know, they have those in very large corporations. So as entrepreneurs, as people who build organizations together and collaborate and cooperate, we can solve this inside too. And I think it's probably more secure to have something like that in a workers co-op where everyone's it's an own infrastructure and nobody has power over each other. Because I know a big fear with company uh, therapists and things like that. And a lot of the reasons it's outsourced through insurance is because you can't trust the company with it. And even if it's as simple as your worker co-op gets like an insurance plan together and, and you can go see your own therapist or whatever, especially if you're all remote or what have you, uh, there's, there's just an inherent advantage of being able to pool your resources to solve all problems. And it is important when there's somebody in human resources internally with a company that you understand what they're reporting, uh, rules are basically or what when they're obligated to pass something on to upper management or to the police if there's like a safeguarding issue right. or other other doctors and medical professionals sometimes there are things that they're required to actually pass on if you if you mention that you're um that you're at risk of, of harming yourself or, or other people sometimes there's there's reporting which they're obligated to do by law so it's worth understanding that and that as well. that varies from country to country as well and i yeah. think within the scope of having any internal therapy structure is those people don't need to be a one-size-fits-all solution it could literally be someone mm -hmm. that you yeah. you talk to uh about work stresses specifically about issues you're having with your your, your co-workers or your your colleagues or, or what have you and not even in a super interpersonal way but like you know i I get frustrated because I'm not good at like public speaking. And so in meetings, I feel like talked over so on and so forth. 
you can you can segment these things, right? And then encourage people to seek external mm-hmm. help beyond that. Uh, and you don't even necessarily need the- to stratify their role. But what I will say is that recognize when you do have a traditional company that isn't a worker co-op and you are someone's employer, you are the last person that they should be going with. They should be able to talk to someone who is kind of like a neutral party and doesn't necessarily like manage them day to day because frankly, they may have things to say about you. Maybe you're the overbearing one. You don't know. And even if you have the best intentions, it's the classic like whistle of my door is always open to you. Right. As if that, as if that does it, as if that solves the problem. So you can always come to me, your superior. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a very, and a lot of people learn not to trust that. And what you really mean by when you say your door is always open is like, Hey, if you have any ideas how to improve workflow, things like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, on the topic of mental health, I wanted to plug the game Eliza. Uh, which deals with sort mm. of the commodification of mental health and uh, healthcare services in general. And it's very fascinating. It's written by a good friend of mine, Matthew Seiji, and the folks over at Zactronics. Uh, they are wonderful. And uh, I want to plug that as a recommendation for people to check out if they're interested in thinking more about this on a conceptual level. Because I know a lot of games of late have started tackling things like mental health, and there's good ways to do it. And there's really bad ways to do it. Uh, and sometimes the bad ways can be very well-intentioned. Uh, I think of uh, that one game, uh, Hellblade, that came out. That's the one, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so they, they really talked up about how they, like, they, they talked to all these people, these consultants, everything else like that. Well, they talked to physicians and therapists and people like that. But when trying to address the issues uh, surrounding topics like neuroatypicality and and things like that they didn't actually reach out to my knowledge to many of the people who are actually affected with these things and live with them day to day so which seems like the most obvious thing to do it's a bit boneheaded to kind of miss that right and so make sure that when you're building these systems or you're using them in your stories you're doing your research, and that research includes either listening to experiences of or talking to people and learning their experiences directly of the groups that are affected. Like, especially when it comes to things like, man, if there's one thing that is really under addressed in the workplace, it's trans issues, right? And, it, and it's not a matter of mm-hmm. like trans people being in the workplace at all, because <laughs> there's not there's not a lot of us out there in the workplace. There's not a lot of us who are involved with companies to begin with, but when we are in there, our unique needs aren't always necessarily addressed by the working environment. Uh, and, and so that's been a big push. You know, it's like people putting uh, their their pronouns and their emails, uh, sign off and handles, and then their coworkers just totally glossing over it, ignoring it, and then getting really weird and, and confused when like talking about this in person, you having a problem with this. So it's, it's really fascinating to me, just kind of like- Yeah. Going through the motions of all that. There's, I mean, there's there's so there's so many there's so many aspects, and it seems like a lot, but really each single thing is is quite simple. I mean, on the pronouns thing, uh, even just at GDC, there's uh, there's like a game audio podcast, mm-hmm. which is well, at least last year was hosted in the Sennheiser building um, near Union Square, and Josie Breckner is was mm-hmm. one of the people running that alongside Damian Kaspauer, and um, when anybody contributed to the discussion they asked okay can you start with your pronouns 
and some people like the particularly older white dudes right um just were like what what do you mean <laughs> but funnily enough most of the younger folks or i didn't see a single woman who had an like a road bump with that um just recognize the value of it intuitively because it just it just normalizes the whole thing if somebody has to specify it because they they are trans or because they're non-binary or or whatever um if they feel that for the, for their comfort they need to actually stipulate their pronouns then it makes it that much easier and more comfortable if everybody else is doing it anyway yeah having it normalized you don't have to single yourself out and i think in a way older men especially look at it and feel singled out somehow and and i know that sounds if anything men need it the most and i know that's a funny thing to think about because i think a lot of that apprehension kind of connects to male mental health as a whole in that you don't think about yourself you know maybe your actions can be selfish and and self-motivated in terms of like driving towards your goals that you specify in life but it's one thing to introduce yourself as i'm so and so da 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 but i'm so and so and i'm a he him you know that's yeah. a different statement because you give humanity to yourself through that act and i think that's what's yeah. important is nobody is telling you that you can't identify as a man as uh, uh, he, him. And I don't mean identify necessarily even in the way as like something new to you or as a abstract concept, but it's like, that is a part of your identity. And maybe you've yeah. never thought about that. And maybe by... They throw you in jail for being a white man these days. Yeah, maybe. As soon as you say you're a white male, they throw you in jail. But like, seriously though, you, you raise a good point. It's like, you. I think, I think men and particularly white men are in a privileged position of really not having to think about those aspects of their demographic identity in their everyday and lives. And it can be a detriment to them, you know, sure. because there's all this like, because they don't talk to people, because they don't have anyone to talk to about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a guy. They can now like kind of pause for a moment and think, huh, my pronouns are he, him. I haven't really thought about what being a man necessarily means to me. And every or did I have the option? Yeah, th- right. To even have the option to even just think about yourself, let alone putting aside the the matter of thinking about identifying as something else. But but the notion that you can identify as who you are and to affirm that verbally and bring that out of the subconscious. I think that that actually is a lot of utility for men. And I think that men... Seem like a really valuable process. Right. And I think that men should look at it so and look at it as an introspective tool and go, this is a way I can help myself, actually. This is a way, you know, a lot of men out there are really super focused on being self-sufficient. That's what this is. So think about this. By giving you this toolkit, uh, helping you think about these things, that's exactly what you're doing. You're learning to be a more reliable, stronger person. By addressing the things inside of yourself, you might not have been thinking about or you might have brushed aside. So that's really important, I think. For sure. So just just before we close out, I think... I think I found the Linus Tech Tips video. If anyone wants to search it up, it's called I've Been Thinking of Retiring. And just looking at the panels of videos on his channel on YouTube, it stands out completely because the rest of them are all, you know, like they're composited 
images with the the thing that he's reviewing or talking about and then a reaction face basically and some background but then i've been thinking of retiring is right there in the middle and it's just him sat in his chair just looking yeah, at the camera it's it's, it's not and overproduced it's just webcam and a headset mic it's it's very like it's very intimate and i think like that's kind of also a reflection of like streamer culture too right it's like a lot of people have started opening up either through streams or watching people through streaming so it's like we we all have a lot to offer each other um and we all have yeah. a lot of room to grow uh, I wanted to thank you. Just kick the walls yeah, down. I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and talking about all of this. Um, I would love to have you back sometimes specifically because there are more things I want to talk about, but I think this is a good starting point. Uh, and, sure. and I'm glad to hear that things are going really good these days and that you got a nice big <laughs> vacation. That's super fantastic. Uh, well, we're, we're getting that. Go yeah. ahead and, and plug your stuff too. Okay. Yeah. So, well, thank, thank you for having me. I mean, I've, I think, like everybody, I've said to friends plenty of times, like, dude, <laughs> we should totally start a podcast, man. Like, I think that would be sick. People would love it. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> but this is actually my first appearance on one. So um, that's nice. Well, here's to many yeah, more. I am. Um, many more. I, I am Chris. Um, my Twitter handle is where I do most of my posting. Um, and that's at Lazarus underscore audio. So that's L A Z Z A. R-U-S underscore audio, A-U-D-I-O. Um, and my company with Jess is Arbitrary Metric. And that's, we're on there as well. We're on Itch. We're on Steam. And we will be at GDC this March. I don't know when this will be going out, but we'll be there if you want to hang out, if you happen to be lucky enough to be in the wonderful city of San Francisco at the same time. Um, we'll be uh, reviewing Roman Sands, which you mentioned before, Emily, and that that'll be coming out on Steam in probably Q2 or the very start of Q3 this year. I would have thought. Um, and we're also working on pitches for some other stuff, which is is very exciting. So if we come away with some lovely funding from GDC, then um. We'll be we'll be announcing those plans. Now I, now I have to release this before GDC. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry, not oh, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I'm also on Bandcamp as well as Bokeh Um That's I think the, the only thing on there at the moment is a Paratopic soundtrack, and I'll be pa- packaging up and improving the Roman Sands one as well. Um, so, I'm excited for that. You did fantastic work on that. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of it was like shorter motifs rather than long form area soundtracks uh but i'm really happy with it as well so yeah i'm looking forward to getting that out there well with that folks that's all the time we have for today thank you for listening and joining us on this very special occasion uh thank you very much once again go check out chris's work on their sites that they had just listed and uh you know keep on reading and supporting us we really appreciate it thank you so much bye